Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Alice famously went through the looking glass. Well, today, we'll step outside at Fernbank Museum to see larger-than-life versions of our world's natural habitats. And first, step inside an artist's masterworks. Imagine the experience of getting lost in a painting, focusing on minute details, maybe even imagining you could step right into the canvas. You can. Well, you can feel like it. With Van Gogh, the immersive experience, an exhibition that is open now at Atlanta's Pullman Yards. The 360-degree digital art experience allows visitors to take a journey into the universe of Vincent van Gogh. Mario Iacampo is the producer and creative director for the exhibition, and he joins us now via Zoom. Mario, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time I don't come to Atlanta, so it's always nice to visit the beautiful city. And we're getting a great reception. Well, I'm curious about that very reception from the get-go. How did people hear about the experience? Because it seemed like tickets were sold out for the first two months before most of us had seen any advertising. The initial campaign was all driven through the Internet. You know, with the COVID and everybody being a lot more at home, uh, I think that helped a lot because people were on the internet a lot more. And yeah, we're not completely sold out. We're sold out for the first uh, three months, but uh, we, we plan to be here uh, right until uh, New Year's Day. So <laughs> yeah. Celebrating Christmas with Mr. Vincent Van Gogh. I could see that. It's funny to hear you say you're not completely sold out. For some of us who thought we would go when the exhibition opened to find a waiting list of a few months was quite extraordinary. But such is the appeal and popularity of Van Gogh. How did you come up with this immersive experience idea? I can't take all the credit. The idea and the content is an evolution. You know, we have a creative team. My original idea was to create a digital immersive experience. 
And then after that, we said, okay, what's the best artist to do that with? And Van Gogh, you know, was number one, right? You know, there was no, there was no question about that. That Van Gogh was going to be the one that we were going to do. Uh, the colors, the story of his life, all those things made him an incredible number one. For me, what impressed me even more was the fact that when you think about, he created all of this in nine years. Mm. Uh, he only painted from the age of 28 to 37. So it's a very, very, very short career. I think that that's what impressed me the most. Oh, and you know, that brings to mind Mozart for me in his all too brief lifetime of barely 36 years to have written more than 600 compositions. And you mentioned the paintings. Were there 700 Van Gogh turned out in nine years? Vincent Van Gogh painted over his lifetime 900 known paintings. And I say the word known because, you know, just as recently as a month and a half ago, two months ago, they discovered another one and they, they said it was him. So, you know, the 900 are known, uh, over 2,000 drawings and sketches. Uh, in those days, you know, they used to also paint over paint painting. So we can be sure that even though we're talking about 900 paintings and over the course of nine years, in reality, we painted a lot more than 900 paintings. In the show itself, we represent a little bit over 400 of his paintings and his works throughout the experience. Pullman Yards is an amazing location. What drew you to it? The location for me is really part of the show, part of what we do. And so whenever we go to a city, you know, you're looking for, in the best case scenario, you're looking for iconic venues where you can really bring out not only the art, but you can also bring out a texture to the show that's created by the building. So we looked a long time in Atlanta, you know, we looked at probably 20 different locations and we always came back to Pullman, even with its challenges, you know, because it's been closed for five decades almost, you know, a little bit more even. And so we thought not only can we bring a beautiful show, but people can come over and rediscover Pullman Yards because everybody knows where Pullman Yards is, but not many Atlantans have really been here. And so we thought, yeah, let's do Pullman Yards, even with its challenges, you know, because you, you take over a building that's been closed for five decades, you can imagine, right? That's, you know, it needs, it needs some love. But we thought it was still worth the effort. And I think it was the right decision. You know, the reaction of the people when they're inside, that's a very, it's a very warm atmosphere. What sort of venues has the show been presented in other cities? The show opened in a historic church in Naples, a church called San Maggiore, and it was built in 1540. And so right from the initial creation, it's been envisioned in a historical monument, in a cathedral-style environment, which Pullman has that feeling once you're inside the main room of the exhibition, you feel you're, you know, you're in a cathedral environment. We're, we're doing projections that are over 40 feet high. We're covering over 25,000 square feet of projection surface with the screens and the floor and so that the majestic nature of the building you know certainly uh, augments the the quality of the show and the and the experience that the public has hmm. in how many cities has this show already been presented uh, good question i think it's like uh, i want to say 12 uh, as far away as the national museum of china in beijing wow we're the only non-original artwork ever presented inside the National Museum. And so it was, it was and there was the same thing. It was extremely impressive. You know, the museum is 400,000 square feet. I mean, it's just a massive place. And so 
uh, we were very, very, very excited to present it there. And so we've been in 12 cities. We've been in the UK, in Belgium, in Germany, in Austria, in Italy, in Spain, Tel Aviv. We're scheduled to go to, to South America in the fall to again play a museum in Rio de Janeiro. We get around, I guess, is the best <laughs> way I can say it. <laughs> or, or Van Gogh gets around. Yeah, he does. It's a testament to his popularity. In the first room of the exhibition, you focus on the artist's life. What can we expect to learn about Van Gogh in the opening of the exhibition? The approach we took with the artist's life was more anecdotal. We tried to focus on points of his life that we felt mark this career or mark this style. You know, major events or major points, for example, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the, in the initial rooms is about the vases. And in itself, the reason we show the vases in a deeper study, because it goes towards his style. He had a propensity to study a certain subject and go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's lots of those examples in his life. You know, there's the sunflower series. There's the vases, there's the oral portraits, where there's a very similar subject, if you want, or a very similar object almost, but really viewed with a different eye every time. And so we wanted to talk about that. Then, you know, we wanted to talk about his life in general and his, and his iconic paintings like Starry Night, Starry Night on the Rhone. We talk about his relationship to Gauguin, which was important because it led to the whole incident that we, we all know about, about his ear cutting. And finally, we talk about his final painting, a painting called Tree Roots. And that's important because historically, we talk about the fact that he finished painting it the day before he committed suicide. And, and that's important also because for the longest period of time, people thought that the wheat field with crows was his final painting. And it turns out it wasn't, you know, so all these kind of things. And then the next room where we get into a little bit more about influences and his style. So, you know, we have the bedroom. Uh, that we recreated in life size. And the reason that's important is because he painted three bedrooms and he painted them for his brother, his sister, and his, his uh, mother. And they're all slightly different. You know, they all have a little touch that makes them unique. And that's important because the bedrooms was a part of his life. First of all, it's a spectacular piece of art, but it was the, the 2D forced perspective, which is very unusual. So you have this sort of tunnel feel to the bedroom, but everything is in 2D. That's what makes that painting so spectacular because that's not what you expect. You know, then we speak about the Japanese influence on him uh, because he went to huge exhibition in Paris in his time and he looked at Japanese prints and he was fascinated. And again, some of his large, well-known paintings are influenced by Japanese prints. You know, he did the courtesan, the almond trees. Everything is 2D in the almond tree paintings. We also have a recreation in large format at the entrance to the convent where he committed himself. And we felt those three points were important because they really marked his life. There was a lot of other things, obviously, that happened in his life, but we felt that those were major directional elements in his life. And the purpose of all of that, of, of speaking of all those things, is because during the immersive part, we tell the story in the same way, visually. If you are just joining us, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Our guest is Mario Iacampo, the creative director and producer of Van Gogh, the immersive experience. 
on view now in Atlanta at Pullman Yard. Let's talk about that second room, the immersive experience in the second portion of the exhibition. It is stunning. It's filled with projections of Van Gogh's work and animation that makes the pieces come to life. The people in the hall were transfixed. Everyone was hushed, quiet, and staring all around them in awe. Can you talk about what went into making that large room come alive? When we did the immersive experience, what I wanted to do is show contextually his beautiful art. So we started out with the idea of saying, okay, we're going to show people many paintings because obviously everybody knows the top 10. If you ask the top 10, I love it. About, about Van Gogh, you know, they'll, they'll be able to rattle off fairly quickly. Starry Night, Starry Night on their own, the bedroom, the, the almonds, maybe one or two of his other portraits. So they'll get to probably eight to 10 that they really know well. But when you look at his art, I mean, there's so much more. There's so much more depth and there's so much more variety that you don't think of it as him. And so we wanted to show that variety. And so we decided in the first part of the, of the immersive is that we would create sort of this virtual museum where we show a lot of his paintings. And then we wanted to say, well, when you look at the painting, where was he? You know, for example, we show the various train paintings that he did. But in that, we mix in that the train is moving inside the painting. And I think for me, it was like when he was standing there drawing, you know, he had to deal with this thing moving. So he had to hurry up. And I think that that's part even more impressive because now you can't just sit there in a, in a stationary field and draw what you see to then paint it later. He had to really get capture the moment so that when, when he filled in the painting, you know, there was enough detail and he captured the moment. And there's a lot of that in all his work because he did, he did so much of his work outdoor, you know, in big scenes. And, and we're not, we know that he wasn't rich enough to get the train to stop so he could paint it. So, you, you know, he had to deal with the reality of his world. So, so that's the first part which is a bit of an introduction to everyone, you know, about his life and all that. And then the second part of the show, we wanted to touch, and Atlanta is the, f- the first time we do this, we wanted to touch the Japanese influences. So, and, and there we, we decided that we would show not only his art, but the art that influenced him. Because it's one of the rare times where his paintings that you can get to a source that influenced him. Before that, it's really hard when you look at his paintings to say, oh, is this particular style or that particular style? And so, and then that leads us into the huge immersive elements, which everyone knows, you know, we do the starry night, 360 degrees, we do starry night on the own, we do the fields of 360, the wheat field with uh, crows, you know, all of those immense paintings, if you want to call them that, that were by him reduced to uh, a tableau. And the very end is dedicated to the end of his life, which was when he was in the convent. There we have a more troubled interpretation of his works, because you see some of the you know, the potato farm that he painted, the women eating potatoes, and those are much darker. And we try and show that through the music also and through the recreation of the convent that he was in. And we think that at the end of that, it gives people sort of a comprehensive feel for his glorious life, even though it was short. That's what we try to do. But, you know, visually, you're projecting video. So unless you've prepared people, it just becomes a series of beautiful images without any context. So that was sort of the objective. 
I'm glad you mentioned the music. For me, the music was a tremendous part of the experience, and it provided such a wonderful soundtrack yep. for the yep. visuals. Can you tell us how that came together? I know some of the music was from Van Gogh's lifetime, but some of it seemed original. The music in general is original, inspired by the period of his life, you know? Music is really goes hand in hand. You can't have one with the other. Uh, you can't have a show without music, and music without a show, you don't have a show. Well, I mean, without the visuals, you don't have a show. So they go hand in hand. And, and so the creation of the music, we wanted to reflect both the calmness and also at, at some points the troubled nature of his soul. was a very troubled person, especially because he wrote to his brother. He had dark moments and, you know, in, in, in what he saw, you know, he had a very difficult life. The advantage of it, doing a story on Van Gogh or doing an immersion on Van Gogh is the letters, because there was over 700 letters and that he wrote to his brother. So you know the story, you know what he was feeling. And we try both musically and visually to stay true to the letters, because that's the real story for us. When he says, you know, I have these dark moments before he committed himself, or when he says that, you know, for him, the night had more colors than the day. It, it really tells you a lot about what he was thinking. The actor who does the narration as Van Gogh was very effective. Who is that? We don't even have his name. What? We, we uh, <laughs> studio sent me some sample voices because I don't like to know who it is when I get the voices. Why? I like to, because I like to just listen to the voice and, and I let the, let the voice speak for itself without knowing all his history. So the, I sent to the studio a bit of a narrative of what I was looking for. I said, I don't want it to sound like a commercial. I don't want it to sound like Broadway. You know, that voice. I said, I just want to, I want to hear someone uh, who's heartfelt. And they sent me half a dozen voices, you know, we listen to female voices, male voices, children's voices, and I chose one, you know, and it worked out well. If you hear a voice telling you, you can't paint, then paint in any way you can. 
and the voice will fall silent. Somebody sends you a picture of an artist, you're influenced. Somebody sends you a story life, you're influenced. You know, we're human, it's human nature, right? To be influenced by those things. And so when I choose voices for any of the projects I've done, they send me a list of voices from the studio and I choose one and up until now it's worked out. It did, it was wonderful. <laughs> well, I was a teenager in the late 60s and early 70s. And the word from my teenage years came to mind with the experience of the virtual reality headset that takes us yeah. into, do you call it virtual reality, augmented, yeah. augmented yeah, yeah. That, reality? No, no, that's virtual reality. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mind-blowing is the word that was popular back in my teenage years. And this is about as mind-blowing an experience as it gets, Mario. You know what I like about the immersive uh, VR is that most people have heard about these funny goggles that you wear, but on the other side of the coin, vast majority have never really tried one. And even less have tried an art one, you know, because most of the VR out there now is, is still gaming. And so the, the idea with the virtual reality experience was, was to transport people back to Arl. And so we, we decided we were going to focus on one element of his life, which is his life in Arl in southern France. And so what we did is we created this voyage in virtual reality of a 24-hour in the life of the artist in Arl. So you wake up in the morning, there's the roosters and the chickens and the cows coming through the window, the sunrise. And then we start a voyage and when we stop, we make eight stops in the city of Arles, where we discover inspirations for his most iconic art. And so you arrive at the yellow house and then the yellow house becomes a painting. You arrive at the siesta and then the siesta becomes the painting that the couple laying down on the, uh, on the hay. You arrive at the, at the starry night in front of the Rhone and we, do, we see that twice because we see it during the day, which was starry night with Cyprus. But then we see it again towards the end of the virtual reality, which is the evening, where we're on the Rhone and we see the starry night on the Rhone. By then we've passed the cafe, which is in the center of the city. And we end up back in his bedroom to see the painting of the bedroom. And so we wanted to completely have people in a different world, which the virtual reality does. And, you know, and it's been a, a tremendous success. Everybody that sees the virtual reality and it comes at the very end. So it's kind of like, you know, you've gone an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, and now you receive this jolt at the very end, another 10 minutes. Uh, very successful, and, and people really, really enjoy it. The mind-blowing experience part <laughs> of it. Yeah, let's call it that, yeah. Mario, it's difficult to ignore the fact that Van Gogh was this emotionally tortured individual who took his own life. And the legacy now, the price that his paintings will bring at auction, millions and millions of dollars. This poor man sold, what, two paintings in his own lifetime? And now with these virtual reality, these experiential shows, are you aware of the irony of the success? You know, the... The nice thing about art is at least that's changed a little bit because nowadays, you know, the contemporary artists or the graphic design artists that, we, that we've had are enjoying the fruits of their labor. Many, many of the old of the masters 
never really enjoyed the fruits of their labor. And then there is some irony in that, but at the same time, I think he lives on, you know, uh, maybe that's the way to look at it. And there's nothing we can do with what happened in, you know, in 1853, but today you can bring it to more people. Mario Iacampo is the producer and creative director of Van Gogh, The Immersive Experience. The show is on view in Atlanta at Pullman Yard through the end of this year. After a short break, another immersive experience, this of large-scale natural habitats outdoors at Fernbank. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Habitats provide homes for all living things from the tiniest ant to the tallest tree. Now, an outdoor woodlands exhibit at Fernbank Museum invites you to travel through habitats found throughout the world. Sarah Arnold is the Director of Education at Fernbank Museum. She joins us via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. This show was put together by Smithsonian Gardens. Why did Fernbank want to bring Habitat to Atlanta? One of the things that we strive to showcase here is that people don't live next to these natural systems. We live in them. By creating this exhibit that allows us to show off the habitats we already have at the museum, it gives our guests a lens through which to explore what kinds of habitats they have around where they live. Ah, Fernbank Forest has an elevated path that takes visitors on a walk through the natural world. As guests enter wild woods, They'll see giant nests created by the Atlanta artist Laura Lewis. Sarah, would you describe these nests and what makes them special? So nests are one of the many types of habitats showcased in this exhibit. And nests in this particular exhibit showcase how birds engineer where they live. So they build these different styles of nests and those provide shelter for them from the elements. They provide a place for them to raise their young. And the exhibit has many different types of these nests. So you get to see different ways in which birds build them. So for example, One of the largest pieces of this exhibit is our replica eagle nest. It's a bald eagle nest. Now, 
eagle nests are known for being quite large. I mean, think of something the size of a six to eight foot dinner table. Wow. Massive. Yes. And what's neat about these nests is that eagles stay mated with the same mate for life, and they will come back to the same nest every year and add to it to the point that after years and years, these nests can be so heavy, the trees that they built them in can't support the weight anymore, and they fall, and then they have to start a new nest. Oh, that's sad that these loyal eagles have to downsize eventually. Eventually. Laura Lewis also contributed sculptures to a part of the exhibit. I have to say, I love the name the bug B&B portion of the show. Would you tell us about the craftsmanship of her sculptures as well as the others that are part of this exhibition? Bug B&Bs are essentially human-crafted areas that bugs and insects and other kinds of invertebrates can live when you know the weather turns harsh. So it helps kind of sustain the populations of those insects and and other invertebrates. Now, the sculptures that come along with this particular section of the exhibit are really, really neat. They are larger than life wooden sculptures of a caterpillar, a mantis, a grasshopper, and they will be placed throughout the area of Wildwoods where we display our bug hotels or our bug bed and breakfast. What do you serve them for breakfast, by the way? <laughs> Mostly leaves and twigs and others. Uh, yeah, organic matter. Yeah, healthy food. <laughs> yes, many of our of our invertebrates in this area are called decomposers. So I like to describe them as the forest cleanup crew. They take all of that stuff that falls to the ground and they break it down and turn it into healthy soil for new things to grow. Oh, so efficient. Nature is so efficient. Life in the balance, that part of the show, allows visitors to explore a variety of different biomes. Which biomes are featured, and what is the definition of a biome? So a biome is an area of land that shares similar characteristics. Usually the main ones are going to be temperature and precipitation. And what that does is it dictates what sort of plants and animals are going to be able to live in that space. So for instance, you know, we can think of a desert, you know, deserts in many cases, especially here in the United States are going to be hot and dry for the most part. So those are sort of the defining characteristics of American deserts, so you wouldn't expect to find plants or animals that require a lot of water in those areas. Now, the biomes featured in this exhibit at Fernbank, we do highlight North American deserts, we highlight uh, rainforests, we highlight tundra, which is almost like a cold desert, um, and we highlight some, some aquatic habitats as well. And what this particular section of the exhibit conveys is how all of these habitats are connected, what is special about them, and how even if we don't live in these biomes, 
what kind of small everyday choices can we make to help protect those for the future? Monarch and Meadows. The title is so pretty. That is another section of the Habitat exhibition. What does Monarch and Meadows highlight? The Monarch and Meadows section of the exhibit showcases our pollinators and what other sorts of animals you can find in a meadow habitat. So meadows are going to be areas of land that are covered primarily by grasses and some small flowering plants. And these are very, very important habitats for you know, small rodents, many insects, like you would expect to find many, many grasshoppers in this area. And of course, our pollinators like butterflies and bees and maybe some hummingbirds potentially. This is important because this type of habitat supports, well, a couple of things. Pollinators are very, very important to natural systems. Without them, we would not have any regrowth potentially, or it would be much less effective. So having a section of the exhibit dedicated, and especially in the monarch case, to displaying what a habitat for monarchs would look like and how we can create or protect habitat is important specifically for the pollinators. Thinking about the monarchs, they require a very specific plant in order to reproduce. Uh, many pollinator species do this. They're called host plants. The host plant in the case of monarch butterflies is milkweed. That is where they lay their eggs. That is where the caterpillar, the larva stage, that's where they eat and gain weight and pupate. So having milkweed is really, really important to protect monarch populations. One of the reasons that it's important to do it all over the United States is monarch butterflies are actually migratory. So they migrate from the U.S. all the way down into Mexico every year. So having a steady supply of milkweed the entire way down is critical for them. There are nine thematic sections overall in the Habitat exhibit, and together they encourage guests to explore the central idea that protecting habitats protects life. What does this exhibition teach visitors about our role in the natural world? I think that this exhibit shows our visitors that habitats are everywhere, everywhere. Again, people are not separate from nature. We are part of it. So the choices that we make, even at our homes and our gardens, they will impact some sort of habitat, whether it's the pollinators that live near our house, or maybe even some amphibians that live nearby if there's a stream. If you look, you can find it. And if you pay attention, you are able to make choices to protect it. Sarah, I have to ask, out of the nine sections, do you have a favorite? I do. <laughs> the sign of the dragonfly section. This is a section that covers the concept of indicator species, which is something near and dear to my heart. An indicator species is a species that indicates the health of, of an environment with 
the dragonfly example, many people don't know this, but dragonflies lay their eggs in water and their nymph stage or their juvenile stage is aquatic. The nymphs are what we call somewhat sensitive or semi-sensitive to pollution. So if we do a survey of a creek or a pond and we happen to find many of these dragonfly nymphs, we have a pretty good idea that that water is healthy. Mm-hmm. So that's, that is one of my favorite sections. And we, you know, outside of dragonflies, that's something that we actually do here at Fernbank. We participate in amphibian surveys and amphibians are another indicator species. So when we go out into our creek in Fernbank Forest and we find a lot of salamanders and frogs, we know that the water quality out there is pretty good, and that's important to us. Sarah Arnold is the Director of Education at Fernbank Museum. Habitat is on view in their outdoor exhibition space through August 29th. Tomorrow, the museum will host a nature walk at 1 p.m. led by a Fernbank educator. In a moment on City Lights, amplifying BIPOC voices in classical music. This is WABE Atlanta. What does the combination of a U.S. poet laureate, a renowned opera singer chef, and several of today's foremost musicians share these days with Laura Downs? The answer is insightful conversation on the NPR web series Amplify. And the host pianist, Laura Downs, joins us now via Zoom. Laura, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. We last spoke about your Rising Sun recordings, music released to celebrate Women's History Month. And we got to talk about Amplify when it launched. For those who didn't hear that conversation, how would you describe Amplify? I think it's a chronicle of our time. These are conversations with fellow artists, thinkers, creatives, about how we're experiencing this, you know, the transformations of of this time. I think they are conversations that are very much about lineage and, you know, the shoulders that we stand on and really the steps that we plan to make, that we are making from where we stand now. I started having these conversations because I realized that within my community of artists, you know, having been in this bizarre and surreal and sort of terrifying situation of having all of our work canceled and our lives disrupted, we were all experiencing a lot of fear and loss. And at the same time, though, we were reimagining our world and our lives. And I just saw that happening in real time and I wanted to grab it and capture it. And it's been so fascinating. I I really feel that if we look back at these conversations, we see our world, our lives shifting as we went through. And in the midst of the pandemic, our national reckoning with racial injustice horrifying events taking place. In the midst of all of this and a contentious 
divided nation about the presidential election, all of that within this space, when most of us have been indoors and for many in your field, unemployed. So what did you learn from that first series of video conversations that has guided you in series two or has deepened your knowledge for what you want to accomplish in season two of Amplify? Oh, well, I mean, I think the first thing that I learned is that I wasn't alone, which was important for me to know on a personal level. And then I realized that none of us are alone and we were all feeling so alone. So having these conversations and realizing that we were all experiencing, of course, the same reality and also having our individual responses, it just made connection very clear. And I wanted to continue to amplify that. Um, I think I've also realized that we can all take action. I think that's been the contradiction of this time, you know, our awareness about these tremendous flaws and faults and divisions and um, devastating problems and our feeling that we were locked in our houses and we couldn't do anything about them. So I think these conversations have really illuminated the fact that whatever our language is, whatever our tools are, whether we're musicians, whether we're teachers, whether we're parents, whether we're friends, what, you know, whatever roles we take in our community, we can use those tools and change can happen. And I think that's a very healing awareness for all of us. Also history, history. I was just talking before our call this morning with a colleague who teaches at Vanderbilt and he's been using these interviews in his class He's teaching a, a class about the history of music and his students are 18 and 19 and 20 years old and they don't have perspective on history. So for them to understand that, you know, all of our problems and also all of our triumphs come from a long lineage and that we're just moving, you know, we're ju we just keep moving. That's also really important and it's easy to forget. And including everyone's history. Yes. You have extraordinary guests on this series. How do you decide whom to interview? <laughs> I mean, there are so many people I want to talk to. I'm just trying to fit them all in. And, and this season, you know, we've expanded from only musicians to a wider range of people who all have connection to music, but, um, you know, are sort of moving in various spheres from literature to food to film. And it's great because music does connect all of us through our narratives and our, our perspectives. I, I think there's an incredible creative flourishing happening right now. There's so many ideas and projects flying around. And within this atmosphere of reimagination, you know, I think for the arts specifically, we are at a crossroads when it comes to structures that have been breaking for a long time and are now broken, you know, and we have this deep awareness that we're entering into a new era as artists, as thinkers, as, you know, leaders in our field, we have to, and we want to take action to redefine what's coming next. So it's just, I mean, it's just fascinating to hear what's on people's yeah. minds. I was thrilled to listen to your conversation with the poet Rita Dove. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, my God. I have had the privilege of being with her on several occasions here in Atlanta, and they've been unforgettable. The first time we met, she talked about being a cellist and that she really wanted to become a professional cellist when she was about 16, but realized she was too shy to perform in public. No, I hadn't heard the shy part. I hadn't heard Yeah, that. it's kind of hard, uh-huh. hard to imagine Rita Dove is shy, uh-huh. <laughs> although yeah. she certainly has a gentleness about her. But all I could think was, no doubt you were a fine cellist, but oh, what the world would have missed if you had not pursued literature. Yes. So music informs so much of Rita Dove's work, her Sonata Mulatica collection of verse, a great example. Laura, would you talk about your ties with Rita Dove? Yes. Oh, my goodness. So Rita and I connected in 2011. I was working with a composer named David Sanford, and he was writing a piece for me called Long Time Coming. It's sort of a long story, but that was a quote from President Obama's acceptance speech. It was also a response to a piece of Duke Ellington's called New World A-Coming from the 1940s. then as well, we were kind of considering this past, present, future continuum. And there's this quote from Rita's poem, Testimonial. I gave my promise to the world and the world followed me here. And somehow that just resonated with me in the context of this project. And so I reached out and asked if we could use the poem. And you know, Rita loves collaborating with musicians and she has a long history of doing that. So we used the poem. There was a a spoken word artist who was part of that project. And then The words just stuck in my head. And before I knew it, it was, you know, 2015 and 2016. And as you know, I work with kids a lot. Um, And I started using that poem as a gateway to imagining personal promise, personal potential. I gave my promise to the world. What is your promise? What is it that you can give to the world? How does the world follow you? And so I've been all over America in all kinds of classrooms and multi-purpose rooms, posing that question to young kids. And it is mind blowing what happens when you do that, because nobody asks them, nobody asks them, what is your promise? What is the thing inside yourself that you treasure, that you see as valuable, that you want to contribute we ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's a very different question. So it's, it's been a big part of my life. And then Rita and I, along the way, at one point, I posted something on Facebook that I was doing a concert in Akron. And she messaged me and she said, 
I'm going to be passing through Akron. That's where her parents, that's where she grew up. That's where her parents lived. And so we had this miraculous opportunity to do a performance together. It was at the the main library in Akron. And of course she's, you know, a local hero there. And I just, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget being on stage with her and having her read that poem. And I was playing the music that, you know, it had inspired. So I just, I feel like she's just a, you know, fellow traveler. And I'm, I mean, I've never met anyone so generous and I mean, she's so kind and she's so warm and the entire world has a crush on her. <laughs> <and she, laughs> she just keeps being amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Challenging cultural perceptions is at the heart of Amplify, and this comes through resoundingly with Chris Bowers. Full disclosure, I love Bridgerton on Netflix. (laughs) Have you watched it? Oh, Oh my God. And you're not alone. Oh, my God. I was stunned to learn just yesterday that the Duke of Hastings... Simon Bassett, the actor that is, bowed out of the series. Chris was the composer for Bridgerton and the movie The Green Book. Would you talk about what emerged from your discussion with the composer Chris Bowers? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that conversation really illuminated a lot of things about this lineage question, you know, so Green Book was about this musician, pianist, jazz pianist in the 50s named Don Shirley, who had a big career at the time. And his thing was doing kind of jazz versions of classical music. the movie is about this tour that he takes a concert tour of the deep south and he has to hire a white driver to you know see him through all these dangerous situations in the meantime chris who grew up however many years later i don't know how old he is you know in this totally different environment where genre is fluid and you can be a young composer who is writing a violin concerto and a film score, you know, and whatever else at the same time. Chris became immersed in this world of Don Shirley's where there were these distinct and and strong lines between those art forms. So Don Shirley was forced into, you know, this kind of role as an entertainer. What he wanted to be was taken, he wanted to be taken seriously as a classical artist. And that pathway was not available to him as a black artist. So our conversation was about the trauma of that, you know, for earlier generations, for being pigeonholed or or defined just by society's expectations and how it is though, that these hybrid forms that those artists developed are what led directly to the musical reality that Chris inhabits. 
another line that I think it's not clearly understood. And it's so important to realize that, that, you know, out of adversity, out of lack of opportunity comes innovation. And then, then that innovation is inherited by the generation and we keep building. So I loved that conversation. It was about so many things, um, but I think that was the heart of it. At one point in the conversation, I love this. You quote Nina Simone saying she really wanted to be a concert pianist. And here you are a concert pianist and you'd love to be Nina Simone. Laura, what you do, whether you are at the keyboard or in conversation or teaching and mentoring kids is completely creative. And I hope you know how much we appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And just, you know, I'm following my heart and it's taking me to so many interesting places. Lara Downs, pianist and host of the NPR music series, Amplify. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., our guest will be the author and historian Scott Ellsworth. His new book, The Groundbreaking, continues his research on the Tulsa Race Massacre. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.